progress is slow. Getting projects approved, programs started, they take determination and consistency, and I guess partly stubbornness. Leadership is not something that should really be put off till you're a full professor and want to be a dean. Leadership is something you do every day. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast, folks. I'm Kim Skorupski. You've joined the Triple H, the Habits and Hacks from Hopkins. And on today's episode, I'm really happy to introduce to you my friend and colleague, Dr. Barbara Feibusch. Barbara is our Senior Associate Dean of Women here at Hopkins and the Director of the entire Office of Women in Science and Medicine that she started. Barbara started her career in pediatrics. In fact, she's a professor of pediatrics, and she even developed and started the Division of Pediatric Nephrology. Hello, Barbara. Welcome to the Faculty Factory. Hi, Kim. It's great to be here. Well, thanks so much. I know oh, you and I had a conversation, I think, last year and we recorded a great episode that ended up being all glitchy and we couldn't get you. So I'm so glad to have you back to share some of your insider tips and hints to women, and I guess all faculty, but primarily your passion has been with women faculty. So what would you like to start off sharing today? I, I think I'm going to just start off by sharing, just go through some of the things that I think are critical to advance the career of women faculty that, um, that I hope can serve as some useful tips for women as they uh, progress at academic institutions. And I think The first thing that I just want to talk about is being resilient. It's certainly a word that's become more popular over the last year because we've all had to be more resilient because it's been such difficult times. But I think the importance of being resilient can't be overlooked. I think people have to be focused and really open to the idea that it's not always good and it's not always easy, but that they can persevere and they can get through it. And um, working on your career is, it's a long-term process. And um, I've heard members of the team talk about it being a marathon, not a sprint. And I guess I would just urge women faculty and really all faculty to think of it that way, uh, that it's really a long haul and they just need to stay strong throughout. And there are going to be better years and worse years. But, and, and I think again, last year and now are times that are very tough for faculty. So just stay focused and strong as best you can uh, during these difficult times, because there are going to be ups and downs of your career. Uh, folks, for you, those of you who are listening, uh, Dr. Barbara Fivish created three leadership programs for women faculty here at Johns Hopkins. One is for junior or early career faculty women called the Emerging Women's Leadership Program. One for mid-career the leadership program for women's faculty, which actually was the first program she developed, which was followed by the early career. And then most recently, this executive uh, women, the Mary Elizabeth Garrett executive leadership program for senior or later career women. And I recall, Barbara, you to this to the concept of resilience, when you came up with the idea of the executive program for women and you spent a lot of time, this is a project you came up with when you participated in ELAM. And I remember you were so excited about it. You'd spent so much work trying to build it and get the pieces together and work with 
organization development experts and come up with the content. And you had so many conversations with so many people. And I remember your frustration in not gaining or seeming to not gaining any traction right up front or like we all, you know, we'd anticipate, well, I've got this all figured out. Let's, let's go push go. And the lesson I learned from your experience was that, and what you just said now, if you're, if you're passionate about something and you truly believe in something and it just becomes part of you to, to be the resilience means to me that you just don't give up. It's not that you're someone saying no, now it could be just no forever. Meaning it's, Rather, it's just meaning no right now at this moment. And that resilience was that you were able to just continue to breathe and be patient and wait. And then ultimately it happened. But the the pace that sometimes we want things to happen is not on our own timetable. That's hard for people like me who are impatient. So I just wanted to reflect back and bring that to light on an example I remember directly from you. Yeah. And I would say, Kim, because you are right. It was a long process. I uh, had the idea to develop the program and it took us really um, about two years to go from concept to, to actually um, delivery. And I think um, while I was being resilient and, and moving forward, there were things that I had to do during that time, which was to listen hard to what people were saying and understand why there were some objections and, and then to modify my proposal and my thoughts by listening to others. I think I was able to also build a team as we moved through it, a great group of collaborators, but I was also able to network and lead by teams to make it happen. And so the effort at the end, it started with myself, but then it grew to be some uh, really significant other thought leaders and I hope that, you know, as people work through their own projects, they realize that, A, they don't really have to do their projects totally alone, that they do need help and they do need involvement and commitment from others. And that if things are not going exactly the way they want, that they can modify and and really try to listen to the comments and concerns and to work with those. It's pretty uncommon for you to have an idea that everybody around the table is going to say, great, let's do it. So part of that resilience is, is also, yes, continuing to work on it, but to knowing where you have to change and how you can change and, and who can help you make those changes. So I think that's part of the process. And I'm, I'm glad, Kim, that you brought that up because resilience often in part is leaning on others and having those networks to support you. So I just want to make sure everybody listening can make that connection between personal resilience at the micro level that we often talk about after something like a global pandemic of making sure that we're taking care of ourselves personally, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and also the resilience that goes more broadly at a macro level. I imagine when you conceived of a division of pediatric nephrology, like you said, you didn't do all the work in your head and then sit down and say, hey, and everybody's like, that's genius. Let's do it tomorrow. It, and I like how you emphasize listen, 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 and collaboration via teams, because that's, to me, the hardest. When I talk to faculty who have these great ideas, take it from a grant application to a manuscript to building a division, starting a lab, fill in the blank, any of those things, when we are so convicted of something, it is 
crazy frustrating when you don't find that same level of enthusiasm or interest or funding commensurate with your level of enthusiasm. That's where the resilience comes in. So I, I appreciate your reminding us to listen to understand, not listening to convince, because you are really good at that. And, and I've said before, and I just so those of you who know want to know, Dr. Fibush is probably the best person I know who has built successful teams in my whole career. I've never met anyone who's been able to gather a group of people to get something done like you do. And I'm thinking back from when I first came to Hopkins eight years ago when you had the you had the board together and you pushed through so many research projects and policies and procedures and advancements, but you kind of always had, you know, you did it kind of quietly, but persistently. How, how do you do that? How do you get teams of people and, and nudge them and nudge them and nudge them and make these things happen? When we look at our individual strengths, there are some people that are stronger at building collaborations and building bridges and some people who it's less natural for. But I think for success in an academic institution, it's something you have to work on. Um, so I think that I learned, you learn as you go through it. I think you have to assume that there are going to be many people that agree with your position and many people that don't. So the building of teams is to find as best you can like-minded people who are working in the same direction and create create a group that has that energy that you had. But at the same time, you have to involve those people who don't agree with you so you can really understand the barriers and obstacles to your project and to your purpose. And I think with a combination of surrounding yourself with people that can really show you where you're going to have a problem and then people that are enthusiastically supportive of you allows you to, to make progress in this arena. I don't think that every project that you propose or you want to work will work, uh, but I think you have to be able to look at a bigger picture and feel like I'm moving forward. The needle is moving. My, my foot is on the accelerator. It's going very slowly. Progress is slow. Getting projects approved, programs started, they take determination and consistency and I guess partly stubbornness. I think you just have to keep pushing when you feel that you're moving in a good position. But you also have to be able to um, to identify when it's not the right time and it's not the right program and you have to just push back from it. So I feel my work with women has really taught me that uh, there are lots of opportunities and lots of doors that can swing open that surrounding myself by both like-minded women in academic medicine and other colleagues, and also by being aware of those that, that don't always agree with me, allowed me to build teams that, that could listen and formulate plans that were uh, finally or ultimately approved and put in place. I would just hope that people listening to this podcast would understand, and I think we see it so clearly in, in many aspects of, of our our life, that collaborations are necessary for success, that building teams and working with others is necessary for success. success. Uh, people feel that they individually can have personal discovery, and, and I think they do when they can, but a long-term successful career involves really being able to work with other people, 
garnering their support, and then supporting them back. I think it's a critical part of a career in academic medicine is to have these collaborations and networks. I, when I look at the most satisfied academic scientists, physicians, it's those people that, that have these large networks that, that really have people that they can work with and know that they're working in the same direction. And surprisingly, you have to reach out to people, but there are many people where you are that probably can help you, can assist you. Uh, Again, it's important to include those that don't think as you do, do not have personalities that you have to give you a broader scope and grasp of, of your culture, of the environment you're dealing with. But I think learning to do it together it is much more important and you will be more successful than trying to do everything by yourself. It's, it's impossible. I love this, this wisdom. And before I um, let you go on to the second point, because of being resilient is so critical. I just wanted to, again, applaud your, you talk about determination, consistency, stubbornness, but one thing that I admire about you and people like you who have built programs and built systems and programs is that you can maintain that determination, consistency, and stubbornness all with grace. So how do you, for someone like me, how talk talk to someone like me, and I guess I'm maybe I am the only person out there who is has this tremendous character flaw of being terribly impatient. How do you so while I recognize that teams are critical, how do you deal with the disappointment that is inevitable when people either don't share your enthusiasm or don't share your work ethic or don't share your, your drive to produce things. So I'm I'm reflecting, you know, the last thing you just said is you, you can't do it alone. It's inefficient to do things alone. And yet I am plagued by this, this feeling like if I want something done right, I just have to do it myself. And then I go around and do it myself and then I get mad that I'm doing it myself. What advice can you give to someone like me who is who tends to be too impatient and critical and work under my own deadlines that are perhaps not shared by others? You know, I, Kim, I, it's, I think deadlines are important. So I understand the need to have them. I think that people have to be a little flexible about them unless there's an absolute deadline for an NIH grant submission. If you want to start a program in June and it takes you to July to perfect it, I think we have to be patient but I think that the concept that it's not all going to be positive all of the time is something people just have to accept. And every idea you have is not going to be funded. And someone told me once after several of my early papers were rejected that you'll be able to wallpaper your house with the rejections. Now, of course, everything's electronic now, so there's no paper, but the concept that that, that is in life, not just in academic medicine, in life, there, there are many uh, steps towards any pro- process, and I think they're not all forward. And when I was really doing clinical work, I would say to patients, it's always sort of um, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. 
Um, it's sort of the way we heal as well when we're sick. It's the way we treat our patients. We know they're going to have setbacks. Um, in our personal life, we know that not every day is going to be our best day, that each day we're going to deal with some things that are annoying that don't work for us, but we're still moving forward. So I think it's being able to keep that positivity, Kim. Um, I've always felt that moving forward, I had to be positive. I had to be positive about what I was doing. I had to be passionate and sure that I was doing important work to me. And then if there were things that didn't work out right or just lack of progress or even moving backwards, I kept feeling that I was moving forward. And I used to say to people, I often felt in the beginning when we were talking about culture change at Hopkins, like a salmon swimming upstream, right? always going to get into the current and into the turbulence, but you're going to keep moving forward because you have the passion to do that. And the, the problem for some people is they fall into a, a negative place where they start, they can't move forward. They sort of lose their positive thinking and they blame other people for things that they can't complete. I chose in my career for a long time. I've had early on in my career, very poor mentors. And I guess I've always decided early on to try and take the high road to do the right thing, to move forward by being positive, by move forward, by promoting myself and never to try to push someone back or to make them less successful. It was always my mission was for myself to be successful and hope that everybody around me was as well, but not to, to be a negative impact to them. Because yeah. I was able to stay in that frame of mind. I learned who were people that I could work with and people I couldn't work with. And I think you learn that over time. But I think it's unrealistic to not be impatient. It's unrealistic to not get frustrated. But it's better to try and put that in the bigger picture of, but look at what's happened in the last year. Look at what's happened in the last six months. Yes, that didn't work out well, but look at the changes we've made. Yeah. And the other thing I caution faculty to do is everybody has moments where they're not terribly, where they have mental breakdowns, where they're not happy, where they're not showing off their best self. And those moments are best when they're private moments. There are times when you need a private moment and you should take the time to have that private moment. Don't have those moments at meetings. Don't have those moments in front of your division director or department director. It's best to have those moments and to retool and to rethink and to recreate what you're trying to do. And it may take you a day or a week. Don't answer every email right away if you're frustrated. Take the time to really think about who you are and how you want to present yourself so that you're always showing your best self. That, that really is, I think, what will uh, help you be successful long-term and make progress. Again, not to ignore those times that it's you're not feeling well, you're not doing well, you're not getting your grants, your papers aren't getting published, you're not getting good feedback. Those are times you need to reflect and to think and to process. But processing those privately again or with a few colleagues that you are close to or people that are safe is much better than um, bringing that forward at a committee meeting or in front of many people. And I, I think 
again, the purpose is always to present yourself in your best role as your best person, as the best leader you can be. Yeah, I, I, that's really important advice. And I, I think it's so good that you're reminding us that, yeah, not every day is going to be a great day. <laughs> it's just impossible. And for those of us who are perfectionists and are so hypercritically demanding of ourselves and then hence others, that's where we can get into trouble when if we're not mindful of, oh, I'm in a sticky, crunchy place right now, or I just came up with a bad meeting, or technology is annoying me, and so I'm on edge, is to kind of do a little bit of a gut check and say, yeah, I better put my thoughts in a thought bubble, and then, boom, let's like disappear that thought bubble and reflect, take a moment to think carefully about how we want to project and especially as leaders, you know, we're all leaders when you're in academic medicine, um, if not by title, just merely, merely by role, the fact that we're all faculty members, we're leaders. So it's really people are watching to see how we behave. So I like that. That's another great reminder to be mindful of, of how we are uh, being perceived by others and then scheduling time or recognizing, uh oh, I need my tribe, I need my inner circle, or hey, after this meeting, Barbara, can you hang out after the Zoom, because I really want to ask your question, and then I can vent with my, my people, uh, right. backstage, you know, the front stage behavior versus backstage behavior, and so knowing appropriate times, it's also a good reminder for all of us, I think. And Kim, you know, someone told me in one of the um, leadership programs that I've personally taken, to enhance my skills um, was that to glide like a swan. And, and they explained to me that a swan is so graceful and moving slowly and gliding over the water, but under the water, their legs are going very rapidly in circles to promote their motion, but no one sees that. That's under the surface. So just that that idea, and, and it's not disingenuous. It doesn't mean to be um, not yourself. It really means to reflect on how you appear to others and to be your best self. And I, I think about that a lot because we're all running through the hallways and we're meeting people and we're having interactions. And, you know, sometimes we are more abrupt than we mean to be. And our interactions are not as um, well-meaning or collaborative as we'd like them to be. And I think if we just, again, take the breath and we can feel those things, but the way we present ourselves is the way people remember us. Right, right. And I think that's an important lesson. And that is not to say it's easy and it's not to say everybody is perfect all the time. I think we all have our moments that we wish uh, we could have acted differently or projected differently. But I think as best we can, those again, those moments can be shared with our close colleagues and we can just continue to just try and move. Forward. Those things happen. That's in the past. We just need to keep moving forward and try to, again, glide like a swan be that graceful leader, yeah. um, you know, that looks efficiently moving through the surface. Yeah. Even though we have turmoil. Yeah. And, and, and part of what you're talking about is also making me think about the authenticity being genuine. This also kind of wiggly space in between the swan that I'm, you know, gliding on to the stage and look at me all put together and then as Jennifer Haythorn played, our other colleague, um, 
talks to us about how we compare our inner selves to people's outer selves and then deem ourselves as you know inefficient or somehow not as good as. So to in that in that vein or that light, yes, we do want to envision ourselves as and project ourselves as leaders while also juggling that push-pull of being authentic and saying, you know what, I'm not in a, I really came out of a bad meeting or I, I kind of regret something I just said, or I recognize I'm in a bad space right now. So I hope you will give me a little bit of grace and mercy today. And I'm going to invite you to, you know, push back if I say something that is, you know, you deem perhaps a little bit abrasive today or some, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say looking for excuses or justifying maybe bad behavior, but I also think there's opportunity and space for people to look at us and go, no, she's real. She's not this Pollyanna sunshine, lollipops and rainbows all the time. And then hence being plastic or she's not real. She's phony. She's always this perfect, graceful swan. And, and that can be off-putting to people rather She's putting it together and she really is, you know, works hard at this. And she's also real. She will admit to you when, whoops, sorry, I messed up or please forgive me. I was reflecting on that and I think I came across too harsh. So how do you, what are your thoughts, Barbara, on that, the element of being real and perceived as genuine? It's funny, Kim, because I think um, I struggle with that. I, I think I am sometimes too genuine. I am very opened and I'm often very passionate about my feelings. And so the glide like a swan is something I work on. Mm-hmm. I like to, to do that, but I know I have a lot of energy below the surface, <laughs> a lot of questions and a lot of doubt, um, as I think many of us do. I think what I would say is I keep working on it. I keep thinking about it and I keep working on it. And I think I said before, for me, it is being true to myself and my passion and remaining positive. So when I make mistakes, I I often, I apologize for those mistakes. When I say harsh words that I don't intend to say, I will somehow make people aware that that was not my intent. I have no problem at the end of a meeting saying that did not go the way I was hoping. <laughs> I might try and and be swan-like, but I will still say those things and I will still try very hard to acknowledge all the feelings in the room. But I really think, and I agree with Jennifer Haythorn-Thwaite, it's you are working with people, some you know well, many you know just on the surface and you don't really know what they're thinking as you're presenting or where they're coming from. But again, thinking positively about yourself pushing your project positively as opposed to putting people down or pushing them away. So always thinking about that team going forward. And I think the word genuine is, is great. It's not an unprofessional term. It doesn't mean appear emotional at all times. It just means stay true to what you believe in and be who you are. And I think we can all be who we are and still work to present the best that we are. And I guess that's what I, I try to do for myself. I I understand that, you know, that passion doesn't always play well as a leader. It can break down into more emotion than I'd like. But again, I forgive myself for those 
meetings and I work for the, at the next, that the next time that I'm presenting a project that I will be more, mm-hmm. more as a leader, more forward thinking and less passionate, but remain passionate at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think it's something we all have to work, work on. Yeah. It's, a, it's constant growth. It's when you think about leadership competencies, and I imagine as, you know, as an MD and everybody listening to this, to this podcast, or I'm a PhD, when we pass our exams and do our dissertations and you, all the certifications, the fellowships and the training, we're so used to checking that box. We pass the exams, we've published the papers, we've been awarded the grants. So we feel like, well, we check those boxes, competencies done, knowledge, attitude, skills, behaviors done, achieved, on to the next without recognizing that there are so many layers to each of those competencies. So I may check, you know, team building 10 years ago. And I think, well, I'm very competent at building teams. I've done it. Look at my lab. Look at the my clinical load. I'm very good at my staff. I operate like a well-oiled machine. However, when as we progress and, and mature along the career ladder and new opportunities come our way, we enter into different microcultures and different challenges and different projects and different diseases or fill in the blank, which requires a different set of perhaps team building. So that competency box, if you will, is never really checked. It's, you know, checks and it slowly dissolves or there's a, the box gets bigger and there's more room for more checks in that box. So it's a constant evolution of growth and maturity and learning and development. So being humble, I guess I think about a lot that I think, Kimberly, when are you ever going to learn thus and such? Build the blank. And I get so mad at myself. You know, what is wrong with me? Why can't I get this through my thick skull? And I'm like, all right, I got to give myself a little bit of grace and mercy, because as you said, every day is a new day and there's, it's a deep breath and it's never going to be perfect. But in your heart of hearts, it's what's passionate, what you've been put on this earth to do. You fight the good fight. Tomorrow's a new day. And um, yeah, you you keep moving forward. Even if you've been dragged back one or two or three steps, oh, you get up, new day, new fight, new battle, new opportunities to, to play and swim ahead. And I think when I think about leaders, Kim, it's interesting. Good leaders, I think, are ever-changing. They're fluid they have their core. Their core is good and and strong and smart, but yet their ability to interact in different situations varies according to the audience. And, and I think for me, one of the most important aspects of leadership, besides we talked about listening and being resilient and moving forward, I think is transparency. I think a good leader, and maybe that does sometimes reveal your emotion and your and your thoughts, and, and maybe it's not what you always want to show, but I think you have to be transparent and you have to be willing to really let people know what you're thinking and take a stand on things. When I look around at leadership in our country, and this is not going to be political, but when I think about leadership in our country and leadership at our institution and institutions across the country, I think the ability to be transparent so that people trust you and understand that what you're seeing saying is really, in fact, the truth uh, is critical. And it's, it's as important a trait in a leader to me 
as, as anything else. We've you know talked about the resilient leaders, uh, the compassionate leaders, the graceful leaders, the thoughtful leaders, the leaders who are able to build teams. I think you have to really be able to be transparent. I think people have to believe it when you speak and you have to really work on making your message clear to people. Yeah. Um, sometimes I listen to people speak and at the end, I'll, I will turn to someone and say, I'm not exactly sure what the intent was so, or, or what they meant by that. So I think transparency and clarity, mm. we don't talk about that as much as we should either. Well, what I like about what, what this, this concept of transparency is, if we look for ways to communicate a consistent message persistently presented, and I'm saying this all the time, my friend Melissa Smith is in communication and marketing, and she taught me that years ago, a consistent message persistently presented. If mm-hmm. we learn to communicate whatever it is that's important to us in various ways, consistently and persistently, and make that transparent of what we believe in or where we're trying to go, that authentic, genuine transparency, I think will also buy us some forgiveness if the way we do it doesn't pan out. Do you know what I mean? It's like someone might say, well, Kim or Barbara, I, I, I share your vision. I'm not sure about the process of getting there, but I trust you. You're the leader. We're going to go with it. And then that's how you motivate people to, all right, we're going to go this way. And even if it fails, my, my hypothesis is that at least you, through building that team and the trust, you, we gain a little bit of a halo effect that, hey, she was very authentic and genuine. She, her heart is in it. That was the wrong approach or didn't quite work out that way. We're going to pivot. We're going to recalibrate. Now, at least we know, like in any scientific experiment, that's not the ideal way to do that in this moment, at this time, in this institution, in this culture. But um, there are some merits to this. So I think what I like about what you said about the the trusting and understanding, if we spend some time, probably a fair bit of time, being transparent in the, the why, the how will be, will come once everybody understands what we're where we're trying to go, then you get the buy-in of the trust and the understanding of, all right, well, let's try this. And then we're all in this together. And at least that transparency bought you, buys us some, I guess I'm looking for, again, grace or mercy that it's all right, it's all good. And not blame versus saying, we told you, you idiot. Why did you do it that way? No, I think it does give you credibility if you're transparent. I do. And, you know, Kim, we always use the expression, I was at the right place at the right time. Well, sometimes you're at the right place at the wrong time. (laughs) Wrong place at the right. I mean, there are so many permeations of that. You can have the best idea and it's just not the right time for your institution at that moment. You're right. But that doesn't mean the idea is bad and it doesn't mean you should stop thinking about it. It just means you should take a breath, listen to those around you and figure out how you can either modify it to work in the present structure or wait till the environment changes a little bit and, you know, bring it up again. Mm-hmm. So I think, yes, I think we all have to be prepared. I think one of the things that has, I've really become aware of in the last 10 years of talking to faculty is that faculty get very disappointed by their failures because they're very successful people. Generally they are hardworking, they're smart, they're driven, they have a vision 
Um, and there are failures. There are disappointments. Not We talked about it. Not everything works out um, as planned. And I, I think that gets back to our resilience again. I think the expectation that everything will go well all the time, mm-hmm. not really um, true and, and, and not achievable. Again, I think we're going to have times of turmoil, both personal, but also at work, better years at work, worse years. And I think It's going to be our dedication to what we do, our passion about what we do, and our inner strength and resilience that's going to allow us to accept those failures and to keep moving forward in a positive direction. And then, Barbara, I'm sure you can think offhand of many examples of talking with faculty. I'm thinking of three faculty members. I see their faces who, over the years, we would meet and there would be such abject disappointment. I can't believe... I didn't get that leadership position or that grant or that paper published, or I got in trouble because so much of, you know, just disappointment and, and just, it, it's heartbreaking. And then you wait, tick tock, tick tock. And then you see, or talk to the faculty member and they go, and we go, remember a couple of years ago when right. you were so disappointed that A, B and C didn't happen. And now it's the Monday morning armchair quarterback. You're like, oh, now I see. Or like in my personal experience, now I see why those first two houses that I bid on, I lost. It was because <laughs> I was supposed to get this house. And now you see why you didn't get that leadership opportunity. Had you had that leadership role, odds are you probably wouldn't be getting this one. Or had you accepted that job offer, wow, you would have missed this. Yeah, do you believe it? Isn't that weird? I can't believe how that works out. Well, believe it. Sometimes that the resilience will reminds us that there's a time and place for everything. And, and maybe it's not happening for, probably not happening for a darn good reason. And so try to seek some solace in the fact that, okay, there's a reason. It's like you said, maybe not, not, Ever, but just not now, or there's probably something else coming around the corner that I'm not aware of. So I'm just going to sit tight. I'm not going to have a tam- temper tantrum here and wait and see what happens. Yeah. And I think the, so the, and the, and I think that's absolutely correct, Kim. I think that sometimes you didn't get that opportunity because you really weren't the best person. You might not have seen that, but others did. So you learn from that and you don't stop wanting a good position or another leadership position, but there will be one that is better suited to you. But the important part also, I think from the other end of it, we've been talking about being the recipient as a deliverer of the message. I think it's really important when you're delivering those kinds of messages, again, to be honest, to be transparent and to be kind. Kind is a funny word, but I think we need to really know that when we're delivering bad news, the way we deliver it has a dramatic impact on the individual. People listening to this tape are delivering news if they're leaders and they're talking to their faculty about why they can't be promoted or why they didn't get that position or why they weren't put on that committee. I think the way they say it, it's not as important as getting it or not getting it, but it certainly will have an impact on the individual receiving the message. Hmm. Um, So I think working on how we tell people, you know, when we're leaders that it didn't work out this time and there's going to be other opportunities is critical. It's really a critical process and we need to work on on that. And, and that is the hardest message to deliver, a disappointing message to someone. And we do the worst at it because 
we don't like to do that. We don't like to give people bad news, so we don't do it well. I think working on delivering bad messages well is so critical, not only for your own leadership, but for your your peers' success and their leadership. So that's something I work on all the time. How can I tell people bad news? I don't want to tell them that this isn't going to be an opportunity for them, but how can I couch that news in a way that they understand that it's just now, it's just this instance, it's not that they're a failure, it's just not the right time, it's not the right opportunities, but there are other things to look at and other ways to re-envision themselves. Yeah. And that's really what I've spent a lot of my time doing in the last couple of years is to really talk to faculty when they get bad news about how they can go forward and how they can recreate and take that lost opportunity and make it into a better opportunity. So Kim, to what you said, something around the corner, it's not always fate. It's sometimes because you put some energy and and some thought and repurposed yourself a little bit. Yeah. Kim, I did want to talk for one minute. We've been doing this for a little while. I wanted to talk about the leadership programs because you brought them up and, and I'm not going to talk about them specifically to our institution, but Generally speaking, when we use the word leadership program, a lot of faculty think we mean advanced leadership program for leaders. Learning leadership skills early on in your career is just critical to your success. And that's why we've structured, as Kim mentioned, three levels of leadership programs, an early one, sort of a mid-career, and then an executive or late career leadership program. I think at all levels of your career, you need to be thinking about your leadership, Um, even if you say, I don't really want to be a leader. I don't want to have a big job. You're working in in, um, an academic institution. You are a collaborator. You are working with teams. So your ability to interact and lead is critical to your success. Even if it's not a big leadership position, we are all leaders. And learning the skills at different levels in our career, understanding how we lead, how we interact is really important. I stress to faculty at early levels of their their career to really think about how their success is going. What is their personal leadership type? How do they do best with others? How do they provide feedback? How do they negotiate? Those are things that critical concepts that we need to be working with our junior faculty on very early on so that they can grow to be those more senior leaders down the line. It, leadership is not something that should really be put off till you're a full professor and want to be a dean. Leadership is something you do every day. It's defined differently and it's there are different levels of leadership, but thinking about you and your success in your academic institution is critical from the day you start. It doesn't mean you should join the faculty in the next day and enroll in a course, but certainly when you get your feet on the ground, you should start thinking in the first couple of years how do I make myself the best faculty member I can? How do I learn to interact to contribute to this institution in a positive way? How can I promote myself so that I will get to where I want to be in 10 years? So I really stress the importance of thinking about leadership early on in your career, just to get those basic skills. Don't wait till you're promoted to to learn uh, how to run a meeting. This is something you should be learning as you're moving through your career. Start early. It'll uh, help you. It'll make your transitions as you get more senior easier for you. I totally agree. And 
there's an a paper that just came out in, in academic medicine. I just pulled it up because I was just reading it earlier this morning by Thomas Collins and Rania or Rania Sanford. And the title is The Importance of Formalized Lifelong Physician Career Development, Making the Case for a Paradigm Shift in Academic Medicine. So you might want to check that out. But essentially, they're talking about how this, and this is the case for physicians, but of course, it applies, I think, for, um, of course, for PhDs, is that when you go through medical, getting your MD or your PhD, very, very few of us are trained on any kind of professional career development um, content. It's all about, you know, didactic learning about whatever your, your chosen expertise or content area is. And so these authors are suggesting that the military, the, you know, the Air Force, for example, has they have leadership program that is embedded in the culture that at every rank there is growth and learning and potential at every stage. And they are suggesting in this article that we need to uh, formalize and get away from this idea that, well, once you're an MD or once you're a PhD, slap those letters at the end of your name, you're good to go. Uh, no, there is so much to be had that will improve upon uh, our, as, as you mentioned, every facet of our clinical research, education, program building that we are not taught formally. So we're, you're not done. We're never done. We're never done learning. And these programs that people like you, Dr. Barbara Fivish, have designed and implemented and evaluated and published on they're, they're not uh, just fluff. They have serious and real true value that will help fulfill you throughout your career, both personally and professionally. I agree, Kim. That, that's a great reference for others to read about, but I think we, we could do it better. I think you're right. Many people learn how to be a doctor. I'm thinking of my own training or a scientist or a PhD, but they don't learn these other skills. So, right. I do think it's good through your office of faculty development, if you have an office of women and you're a woman, but I certainly think this is something academic institutions are understanding more and more, that faculty benefit, scientists benefit from this kind of training early on. So Yeah, and institutions, you know, our our institutions benefit, it helps with retention and engagement and all, especially in light of all the the resource reductions and the the revenue and all the other stressors and pressures on us. If we have a faculty workforce that is, feels valued and feels like we invest in their development. It's, you really can't lose by that. So I I applaud you and in the programs, the women's leadership programs you've built here at Hopkins. Thanks, Kim. I just love these conversations with you. Uh, Any final parting thoughts for the audience? Yeah, I would say the one last thing I want to leave people with, I think is so important is um, networking. Mm. Always be on, you know, when you're at meetings and you're listening to other speakers at your professional society meetings, take that extra energy to meet some people, to talk to people, to meet the speaker, to ask a question, to go up at poster sessions, to learn about other people's research, expanding the number of people, you know, expanding your networks, allowing people to know who you are. It is a form of self-promotion. Kim talks about self-promotion. I've heard her speak. It's wonderful. It's a great opportunity to self-promote, but networking is the thing that will keep you when you are the most vulnerable. It will keep you the strongest. It will, the people that know you, that 
that can help you, that you have helped, those networks can get you through some pretty difficult times. They can also advance your career dramatically. So be strategic about that. Know the people that can help you and work to establish relationships, meet people that you're collegial with, that understand you on a personal note, make networks with uh, them as well so that your networks are vast and and complex and and rich with different types of people mm-hmm. that you can turn to in different situations. But again, isolation is is really is the thing that that leads to to poor success for most of our faculty. I think if you work alone and you don't have those relationships at work and you keep working your home life so separate that that there's no personal space at work for you. I think it's difficult to be successful. It's easier as a team and the networking will really help advance your career. So keep thinking about that. Uh, you're, when you said self-promotion, it reminded me the first time I ever heard a talk on the graceful art of self-promotion was Dr. Luann Thorndike mm-hmm. through the AAMC, the group on faculty affairs. I remember when uh, Luann gave the talk, I thought, are you kidding me? Self-promotion? That sounds so icky. Why in the world doesn't my CV speak for itself? And uh, she was right. Boy, I learned so much about that. It's completely underestimated in the value of doing that. And what do you always tell, Barbara? Everybody listening, Dr. Fibish has a wonderful memory to always reminding all of our female faculty throughout her leadership programs, which are female, this applies for men too, when you are anywhere in a public forum, right. what do we always do, Barbara? Say your name, introduce yourself, always. Always say your name and say it, and then Barbara always is very funny, she should say it loudly, clearly, articulate. Don't just say, hi, I'm Kim Skorupski from Hopkins. Say, I'm Kim Skorupski from Hopkins. Say it slowly, clearly, so people know you and know how to say your name. That's so funny, but she always insists during the courses. Someone else to ask a question, she'll say, say your name, please. Right, right. I think that is important. There's nothing worse than um, being in a meeting where you've met everybody, but you don't know who anybody is. So (laughs) make sure everybody knows who you are. Oh, I love that. Nothing worse than you've met everybody, but you don't know anybody. Right. That's a great way to, to part uh, today. Folks, this has been Dr. Barbara Fibush, the Senior Associate Dean of Women here at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, the Director of our Office of Women in Science and Medicine. Barbara, thank you so much for being on the Faculty Factory podcast today. I love talking with you and thanks for sharing all this, these words of wisdom with the folks. Thank you, Kim, for having me. I enjoyed it so much. Take care, everybody. Talk to you next time on the Faculty Factory Podcast. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.